Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 20. We're going to be starting in verse 17 this morning. But before we get into that, I do want to make an announcement in order to prepare you for what is ahead on Sunday, April 3rd. So that's still a few weeks away. We're going to be going to three services. And so we've, we've kind of maxed out the space that we can use in here. And so we want to make room uh, for people that are not yet here. We've maxed out our kids space. And so we need to make room across, uh, really just across every area of worship that we have. And so the three service times will be 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. So 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.30 a.m. And so that means for some of you, if you show up at 9.05, you'll be really late. You're just a little late now, but I don't want you to be really late on April 3rd moving forward. We fully expect the 10 a.m. to be uh, the most crowded of the services. Uh, So if you could air towards 11.30 or maybe even 8.30, that would be abundantly helpful for us. And for those of you that have made this necessary, thank you. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, We're very glad to make space for you, but we could really use your help. Um, When you go to three services, that means that everything that we do in two services now, we're going to need to do across three services. And so that means our serve teams necessarily need to expand across the board. And so if you've been here for a while and you love the church, man, I would just ask that you consider helping us out and joining a serve team. Uh, consider serving in uh, one of the new uh, services that we're going to have, especially where kids are concerned. If you can serve in Village Kids, that would be wonderful. If you're too creepy, um, we we don't want you to do that. Uh, And we'll probably just tell you, uh, you're just too creepy. Uh, uh, We're going to do a background check on you. So just letting you know, if you don't want us to run a background check on you, I wouldn't try to serve in kids. That's all I'm saying. All right, because there are things you don't want me to know, and there are things that I could live the rest of my life not knowing. And I'd be perfectly comfortable with that scenario between the two of us. But if you serve in kids, there are things we're going to need to know. All right, just giving you a forewarning there. No, we're so glad uh, to, to make space uh, for everybody, and we're preparing for growth that is uh, to come as God has. We've grown by roughly uh, 30% in the last year. And like I said, we've made as much space as we possibly can across all of our environments. Uh, you know, so we're going to go to three services again, 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.30 a.m. That's happening on April 3rd. Now, one of you are going to show up next Sunday at 8.30. It's not happening next Sunday. I want to give you a couple weeks notice. And so I got to reiterate this. The new service times on April 3rd will be 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.30 a.m. If you need to write that down, please do. Uh, I'm sure somewhere along the way somebody's going to ask me about our 3 p.m. service, and that doesn't exist. 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.30 a.m. I just, I just want us to all be clear. We're so glad to have you here. Uh, Last Sunday, we got back into our study of the book of Matthew, and we took a look at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And so that parable teaches us 
that the grace that every one of us needs is only going to be found in Jesus Christ. No matter what we think that we have accomplished and the reward that we think that we deserve from God for our good works, it never supersedes the value and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't live our lives comparing ourselves to other people because from God's perspective, other people are not the standard by which we are to judge ourselves. We are to live in light of who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ has done, and the grace that every single one of us needs from Jesus Christ. If you don't grasp that and you continue in your self-righteousness, that reveals that you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. No human being has ever or will ever be saved based on your works, based on your obedience to God's law. The only salvation that is available is the salvation that we get through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Now, the conclusion of Matthew 20 from 17 forward contains three different narratives that further this very same idea, but take place in real time. The mission of Jesus was one of suffering for sin rather than leading a military conquest. Therefore, to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is to understand that you are not to seek your own glory. You are to seek the glory of God in your life. If we are to submit to the humbling reality that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that is going to realign the vision that you have for your life, the glory that you think that you deserve. And that no matter how great we believe that we are, we're not to pursue the name for ourselves. We are to pursue the name of Jesus Christ, His glory, His fame, and the glory that He deserves that we need to receive so that we won't live under the wrath of God any longer. Jesus came as a suffering servant to pay the penalty for our sin. And he knew this. And he tells us this starting in verse 17. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Friends, number one this morning, the cross and resurrection were always God's plan. The cross and resurrection were always God's plan. Jesus knew why he was on earth. Jesus Christ was literally born to die. After stating the parable of the laborers, Jesus used this as an opportunity to prophesy about his own death and resurrection. There were probably many people following Jesus at this point. He's producing miracles. He's teaching in an authoritative way that people in Israel had never seen before because he was the author of scriptures. But in this moment, he takes the 12 disciples aside. He only speaks this prophecy to the 12 disciples. Jesus wants the disciples to know and to understand why he came to the earth. But the reality that we see, even moving forward in the gospel accounts, is as clear as Jesus is. It doesn't get much clearer than this. As clear as Jesus was with the disciples, they still had their own ideas about how the story of Jesus Christ was to end. 
It tells us a lot about ourselves. Because no matter how clear God has been in His Word, no matter how clear He is to us about the plan and the will that He wants us to live for in our lives, many of us, even all of us, still every day struggle with casting our narrative for what God wants onto Him rather than receiving His narrative that He has already given us through the Word of God. This served as a warning in a moment of excitement where many had the wrong idea about what Jesus was going to accomplish through his earthly ministry. Even after the resurrection, in the book of Acts chapter 1, the disciples stand looking at Jesus ascend into heaven. And they're basically asking, well, now is the time we're going to go into Rome and take over? They're still confused about what the mission of Jesus is actually all about. But there was one who was never confused about what he was all about. And that is Jesus himself. Many people have a false idea of the gospel in which they think that this is something that Jesus kind of threw together throughout his life, or this was some type of diversion from the plan of God that he actually wanted to work through Jesus Christ, because it stands in opposition of how we view greatness. We do not view greatness oftentimes as laying your life down. We do not view greatness as someone becoming a servant. We do not view greatness as someone lowering themselves from their glorious position into humility to substitute himself for people who are necessarily lower than he is in stature and position. But that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. Jesus was never confused about the mission that he had for his life. He was there to do something far more important than anyone would have ever thought that he was there for. He was there to die for sinners. He was there to make a payment and atone for the sins of humanity. Luke chapter 18 verse 31 adds that he told the disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem in order to fulfill prophecy says it this way, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and what? Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. We should not be surprised by the gospel of Jesus. The Old Testament has hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about what Jesus would be like, how he would be born, who he would be, the life that he would live, the payment that he would make for our sin. It's an amazing number of prophecies, beginning even in Genesis chapter 3, where it tells us, though Satan will strike his heel, he will crush the head of the devil. And we ultimately, in light of the cross, know that that is the first prophecy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though he would suffer and die, his suffering on the cross would serve as a way to ultimately defeat evil completely. In Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, it points to the events that we literally see happen as Jesus was on the cross. The psalmist writes, and he says, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see these prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before the life of Jesus Christ, are completely fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's important for you to understand this because it goes to the very nature of God's plan in the gospel. Sin did not throw God off of his plan. Sin did not enter this world and God look at it and say, well, what am I going to do now? 
I guess I'll have to throw together a plan of redemption. That's not how it works. The life of Jesus went exactly as it was supposed to happen. Jesus did not come to this world and then accidentally fall into the hands of the Jews and the Romans. He did not do all of these miracles and then suddenly say, why is this irritating everyone? I don't understand. Wait a second. This isn't how this is supposed to go. No, the cross of Jesus Christ happened as it was supposed to do. In the book of Acts chapter 2, it says that this happened to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, written hundreds of years earlier, it says that he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, God, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is Jesus moving towards Jerusalem? Why is Jesus moving his life towards the cross? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us, our iniquities, our transgressions. See, those are words that mean our sin, but it goes further than we did something wrong. We have sinned and broken the law of a holy and righteous God. And Jesus came with the purpose to atone for our sin at the ultimate cost to himself. The very God that created all that is was humiliated for the sake of his created people. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he was doing it out of love. He would die so that he could rise and defeat sin and death. And everything that you believe about Jesus Christ, you cannot look at him and say he was a moral teacher. You can't reduce him to that. You can't look at him and say he was mistaken about who he is. You can't look at him and say he was just a good example of a leader. Jesus Christ knew why he was here, and he proclaimed to his people, I'm going to die for your sin, and I'm going to rise from the dead. That is the total of what his mission on this earth is. And to cast it in any other light is to completely miss the point of the life of Jesus Christ. He came to save his people for their sin. And that should humble you. That should humiliate you. It was my sin that took him to the cross. It was my debt that was laid on his shoulders. It was my life that Jesus had to die in order to save. And that is why the next narrative that happens directly after the parable of the laborers and Jesus' pronouncement here is directly connected to what Jesus says because it exposes in us our great misunderstanding of what the mission of Jesus is all about. Look at what the text says, starting in verse 20. And then the mother, oh boy, oh man, mom's getting involved. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, now this is James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. There is a way to be falsely humble. There is a way to use false humility in a way that is actually manipulative. 
that is actually a way for you to try to get your way. I have been encouraged by many people right before they have a big favor to ask me. (laughs) I've been encouraged by a great number of people who wanted to be leaders themselves. I've been encouraged and I've had my ego fluffed by people who then look at me and say, wouldn't it be better if I was in charge? That's what the mother of James and John are doing right here. She's not kneeling in worship of Jesus because there is a way to seek to manipulate someone that may look like worship to other people. But when you have an agenda behind your encouragement, when you have an agenda behind your worship, when you have something that you want to get out of God, you are not worshiping God. You're exposing your ego. She goes on, and Jesus said to her, now, I don't know what Jesus' tone of voice was. I just know what mine would have been. All right? Jesus said to her, what do you want? <laughs> Again, that's what I would have said. And since I'm the one doing the reading out loud, you know. <laughs> she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, so this isn't the mother speaking, it's James and John speaking. They said to him, we are able. How arrogant are we? Lord, we're able. I meet the standard. I can pass the test. We can do it. They have no idea what they're saying. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They're probably indignant because they said, why didn't I call my mom? But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Number two this morning, understand that pride will destroy your faith. Pride will destroy your faith. The request of James and John is ridiculous considering Jesus' plan. It's ridiculous. I mean, look at what Jesus is saying he's about to do. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to be given over into the hands of sinful man so that they can torture him, so that he can suffer. And he's going to rise the third day. And James and John aren't humbled by that statement. James and John say, share a little bit of that glory with me. There is never a mistake in the placement of the text of Scripture. Nothing is to be seen as an island to itself. So this narrative isn't just a lesson in repenting of your pride. It is that, but it is actually a statement of how to view yourself in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you take it in context of the chapter as a whole, 
James and John just look worse and worse. James and John just look arrogant. James and John just look like two people with egos that are so big that they can't possibly in this moment be comprehending what the gospel of Jesus is all about because the kingdom of heaven is about grace. Jesus came with a mission to lay his life down. And here are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, worrying about their own glory and wanting the ability to reign over others. They missed the script. They didn't understand what was happening. Now, we don't know where this idea originated from. We don't know if it originated with mom, mothers. You want the best for your kids. You don't want them in the middle of the line. You want them in the front of the line. You're going to do anything to get your baby his or her way. You're spoiling them. And that's what you're supposed to do to a certain extent. But you probably shouldn't go to God and say, God, share a little bit of your glory with little Timmy. All right? It's just not a good idea. That narrative's never going to end well. Your child is always going to look more righteous to you than to anyone else. Nobody else sees your children the way that you do. Now, I know I've just really offended some of you. You're thinking, well, you just don't even know. You haven't heard him sing. <laughs> Nor do I want to. All right? No one wants to. All right? That's the point. No one loves your kids as much as you do. So here's the mother of James and John. She has either been following Jesus the whole time. Maybe she hadn't been following Jesus the whole time. Maybe she brought them a picnic snack. I don't know because the scriptures don't tell us. But she has the audacity to go before Jesus. But understand that the book of Mark actually tells us the narrative in such a way that lets us know that James and John were in on it with her. Look at what it says in Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Sounds arrogant. It's because it is. But you do it too. You just don't realize it. See, most of us do not possess really good self-awareness. Most of us just look at it and say, but I've done enough to deserve. What we don't understand is that that's the same sin that the laborers in the field that were hired the first hour had. See, all of this is connected. All of these narratives flow in the order that they flow for a specific purpose. Jesus' initial response to this question is very telling. He says, you are incapable of drinking from the cup that I'm going to drink yet they respond that they are. Why do they respond like that? Because they don't get it. They don't get it. Most of us don't. Even if they were willing to lay down their lives, it would have been meaningless. Why? Because they had sin to atone for. You see, only Jesus can lay his life down and it means something for someone else where redemption is concerned. You do not have that capability because you have not lived up to God's holy standard. None of us have. None of us are able to look to Jesus and say, I will pay the penalty for someone else's sin. If I have sin of my own that needs to be paid for, and trust me, I do, then I can't possibly substitute myself for someone else because I've got to pay for myself. Only Jesus can lay his life down and look to someone else and say, that was for you. Why? Because only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus is sinless. 
That is why the Old Testament foreshadows the gospel of Jesus when God makes the demand that the, the calf, the, the sheep, the lamb must be completely spotless without blemish because it was a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ where the person who would pay the penalty, as Hebrews says, once for all, that person had to be spotless. That person had to be without blemish. And I don't know if you know this or not, but that person isn't sourced in this world. <laughs> because all of us like sheep have gone astray. That's what Isaiah 53 said. All of us have sinned against God. Therefore, what do we need? We need a sinless Savior. And Jesus looks at James and John, and he's not just trying to humble them in that moment. He's trying to tell them the truth. You cannot do what you're asking me to let you do. You can't pay the penalty. But in love, do you know what Jesus is actually saying? You need to trust me to pay the penalty. Because what Jesus was about to do, he was about to pay for the sins of James and John. He was about to pay for the sins of their mother. Jesus is always going to tell you the loving thing. Jesus is always going to tell you the right thing. And even if it alters your plans, even if it hurts your feelings, He's doing it for your good. Because only Jesus can live up to this standard. Ultimately, all of the disciples, except for Judas, would lay their lives down in one way or another for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus looks at them and says, Oh, trust me, you will. You will give, but it won't be for the gospel of paying for sin. It will be for the gospel mission once sin has already been paid for. Jesus is telling them that once he rose from the dead, their lives would be transformed to the extent where they would be willing to lay their lives down, but they would do it in light of Jesus' glory, not for their glory. Not so that they could serve to the right or to the left, but so that they could show the world just how valuable the gospel of Jesus Christ is. I can only imagine after the resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit has baptized James and John, what they must have thought about this conversation. Have you ever looked at something that you said before you were redeemed or even looked at something that you've said in a moment of foolish sin? And once you actually do repent of said sin, you do repent of such stupid logic, you look back and you just think to yourself, what in the world was I thinking? Well, imagine looking at Jesus saying, I can pay the sins of humanity off, right? Imagine how dumb you must have felt after you realized the foolishness of such a statement. I can only imagine how they felt about that. But the truth is, is once you are living for the gospel, you realize that the moral of that story is greatness is found in serving God rather than pleasing man. Greatness is found in serving God rather than pleasing man. You see, James and John wanted to get a foot up on everybody else. They wanted to show Jesus loves me more. If you ever felt that way, he must. You ever wake up in the morning and be like, man, Jesus is really making his light shine on me. I'm pretty good. But when you live by faith in the gospel, that mindset, you can't have it. You can't have it. Because what you're doing is, is you're actually living in order to prove something to other people. And ultimately, that is a pursuit of pleasing human beings rather than living to please God. And 1 John 2.16 tells us that this sort of desire 
is not the type of desire that comes from godly desires. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. That's from the world. What James and John are having exposed in them right there is the pride of life. This is the desire for an exalted glory that God will not share with anyone. When something is sourced in the world, that means that its foundation is set in the curse of sin. It is an earthly and transient glory that what you need to understand will burn up in judgment. It will not survive for eternity. The only glory that can survive for eternity is the glory of Jesus Christ. When Jesus begins to talk to them about verse 25, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles. He is pointing out the sinful ambition that you make when you seek to be worshiped like God. I mean, when you look to Jesus and say, I want a throne on your right and another throne on your left for me and my brother, what you're actually saying is pretty clear. I want people to bow before me. I want people to do my will. I want to have some of your authority, God. I want to be a God. Do you know that that was the original sin of Satan? He wanted the glory that only God could possess. He wanted a little bit of worship for himself rather than worshiping God with his life. The pride of life is where all sin is ultimately rooted in because it is the arrogant notion that I know better than God. It's the arrogant notion that I deserve better than God has given me. And this is where the thirst for power and control over others is sourced. This is why politicians with selfish ambitions can never be trusted. They want to be the greatest among us. The problem with that is that the greatest among us is always going to be a self-seeking vision. And nothing about God's plan in the gospel shows us that we can pursue a self-seeking, self-centered, selfish ambition and be worshiping God at the exact same time. It's about the greatness of self rather than the greatness of God. When Jesus states that greatness is found in servanthood, don't misunderstand what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the type of humility that is simply timid and prostrates itself before other people. It's about being a servant of God. Like I talked about, the mother of James and John had false humility, but even serving people, now understand this, even serving people can be selfish and arrogant if it necessitates the applause of men. Have you ever had the thought, well, I have helped all these people and I haven't even gotten a thank you. Ah, I've been doing this for so many years. I've been serving for so many years. I've greeted hundreds of people on that sidewalk <laughs> and no one's ever clapped. I've helped so many people to their seats. And you know what? Not a single time have they said thank you. Oftentimes they just want to find their own. <laughs> you should stop doing that, by the way. Just go where they tell you. <laughs> it's for your own good. I stand back here sometimes. And I'm like, there goes another one. 
You know, you know who you are, too. <laughs> they didn't tell you to sit where you are, did they? But there's this false humility that is selfish when it seeks the applause of man. What Jesus is telling us is there is a type of servanthood that you must have through faith that leaves the results up to God. That leaves the results of who gets the glory up to the God who deserves the glory. True servanthood is only ever found in humbling yourself under the hand of a righteous God and literally believing it is He who deserves the glory for every good thing I accomplish in this world. In 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13, King David captures the attitude of a servant of God. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor, they come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we do what? We thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That is humility. That is greatness. You see, friends, David achieved greatness in this life. The gospel is not opposed to greatness. Did you know that? The gospel does not mean you sit there and don't accomplish anything with your life. The gospel is not a force that comes into your life that prevents you from seeking achievement. No, the gospel is the force that comes into your life that says, I'm pursuing greatness, but to show how great he is, to show how wonderful he is, because it is his to bestow honor onto me. It is his to receive glory from me. Therefore, everything that I accomplish in my life, I pray, God, that it points to you because you're God and I'm not. That is greatness. If you look at the life of King David, when he failed, and he did, when he failed, it was because of what? Because he was self-seeking. When he was obeying God, though, he was pursuing greatness as a servant of God. Friends, that's the type of greatness God wants every one of us to pursue. True greatness is only ever found when it submits to a holy and righteous God and lives to point the glory to Him rather than seeking the approval of man. See, friends, Jesus came to lay His life down. His life was serving the mission of God for the benefit of others. It is only when you understand that type of love, it is only when you understand that type of focus, that type of glory, that you will ever understand what real greatness is all about. Greatness is not asking God to elevate you. Greatness is asking God to elevate Himself through you. But then we have a third narrative. 
And we usually miss this one. We usually separate it out. We look at it as a miracle of God and we say it's a wonderful miracle that Jesus did. But we don't realize the placement of the narrative of the two blind men flows seamlessly from the narrative of James and John asking for greatness. Look at what the text says, starting in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, and note the similarity to how he asked the mother a question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. There's a right way to ask a question. There's a wrong way to ask a question. James and John didn't get it. It took two men who couldn't see Jesus, who had nothing to offer Jesus, who had nothing to offer anyone, were completely cast out as worthless, whom the crowd looked at them and said, shut up! Don't bother greatness as it walks by. And Jesus stopped. And just like he looked at the mother of James and John, he looks at the two blind men and he says, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? They didn't want greatness. They knew Jesus was greatness. They exposed that because they don't just call him Jesus. What do they call him? Son of David. That's the summary of every Old Testament prophecy given about Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the eternal king of Israel. He is the one who was promised to come and redeem his people. And that is exposed by them twice saying, son of David. But they don't want greatness. What do they want? Mercy. They want mercy. They know who they are in light of who he is. Friend, they expose us all that every one of us needs a move of God like they needed a move of God. They were only capable, these two blind men, without all of the technology that we have, without all of the medical breakthroughs that we have, these two blind men could only take a posture of need in their lives. It's all they could do. They could not exalt themselves to Jesus. They could only say what they needed to Jesus. All that these two men knew was humility, and that is the attitude that God blesses. These two men, they didn't want the approval of the crowd. Crowd looked at him and said, silence. Crowd looked at him and said, don't bother him. Crowd looked at him and said, he needs to focus on us. He doesn't want two worthless blind men. They didn't listen to the crowd. They didn't listen to him. When you seek the approval of men, you listen to the crowd. When you seek the approval of others, you worry more about what they will think than you're worried about what God will think. When you want the approval of humanity, you will allow them to silence you even if they want your silence so that they can shout lies. 
But these two blind men, they refused to be silent because they knew that the only hope that they had to be made whole was right in front of them. It was Jesus. They didn't have anything of themselves to offer to Jesus Christ. They could only ask him for mercy. See, the truth of who you are then is often found in what it is that you want God to do for you. The truth of who you are is often found in what it is that you want God to do for you. There is a huge gap in between share your greatness with me versus let our eyes be opened. There's a huge gap between those two because one says, I need what only you can give. The other says, look at what I have to offer. Look at the greatness that I deserve for others to, re- to look at in my life. And the truth of what you are chasing in your life is revealed by what you want God to do for you. Do you want God to make you great? Or do you want God to show you that He is great? There's a large chasm between those two realities. The blind men were humiliated and told to shut up, yet they still assumed a posture of need. You see, friend, you may not be forced to live in a posture of need like those blind men were for most of their lives probably, but that doesn't change the reality of what you need from God. Living by faith is not about accomplishing my will to pursue my greatness. Living by faith is taking a posture of humiliating need before God so that He can show how great He is in my life, regardless of where He takes me, regardless of if He exalts me in this world. It will not work so long as you are seeking your own glory. You see, friends, those blind men had faith, and Jesus worked in their lives. Jesus gave them what they wanted. Jesus stopped and listened to them. Friends, Jesus kept walking towards Jerusalem after he left Jericho in order to be humiliated. Do you understand that? How humiliating must it have been for the creator of all that there is, not just to become a human being, but to lower himself to the depths of suffering on the cross. Friends, we are called to share in that humiliation. How do we do it? By submitting to him and what he calls us to live our lives for. Without that type of humility, you will never know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What did those two blind men do? They followed him. They followed him. A few application points. Number one this morning, the gospel is trustworthy because God's purpose, because of God's purpose and plan. The gospel is trustworthy because we look at the gospel and we see a gospel that was always planned. It was always what was going to happen. It was always where Jesus was going to go. Secondly, God does not share his glory. He doesn't. He doesn't share it with anybody. He won't share it with you. He's not impressed by the most achievement that anyone in this world has ever gotten. He's not impressed by anything that we would label as human greatness. God is greater than anything we could ever imagine. Thirdly, greatness is found in serving God. Greatness is found in serving God. Friend, where does God want you to serve Him? Where is He calling you to obedience? 
Where is he calling you to submit to his will and make sacrifices? Those places, as uncomfortable as they may be, that is where you will find greatness. And you won't find it anywhere else, no matter how long you look. Fourthly, take a posture of need in your relationship with Jesus. Do you think he's surprised you need things from him? Do you think he's surprised when you make your request known to him? Do you think he's surprised when you need mercy and grace? When you have times of need in your life? See, the key is that's the posture you're supposed to live in all the time. So what requests are you taking to him? Is it to make you look good or is it to make him look good? Because that's true humility. Humility. 